motivation gets you into the game. Learning is what allows you to continue to play. Creativity, especially when you're going after like high, hard goals where you're not quite sure how to get there. Creativity is how you steer and flows how you amplify the results. Born in 92 on the block with the sharks. Come from a different cloth. Y'all would get ripped apart. You want a diamond, then you gotta get it in the dark. We dropping nuggets like Carmelo with the Rucker Park. Now we eating from state to state. We scrape the plate. I put my eggs in the basket. Took a leap of faith. I took a chance. Now we grow and see the impact. Decoding success with special guests. Now let's bring Matt. Welcome to the show, everyone. Episode number 222 here on the Decoding Success Podcast. As always, it is your host, Matt Labrie. And you just heard from a world-leading expert on human performance, which is the exact thing we are diving into today. More specifically, flow state. I'm sure you've heard the term before, but personally, I know that I want to level up my performance this year. You're listening to a podcast, so I'm going to assume the exact same thing for you. Today, we're diving into what flow state actually is. What are the components of flow state? Is there anything negative about flow state? So much more. I know I'm being a little vague, but you are going to be blown away by how much you learn from our guest today, Stephen Kotler, New York Times bestselling author, an award-winning journalist, and the executive director of the Flow Research Collective. As mentioned, he is one of the world's leading experts on human performance, the author of 10 best-selling books out of the 13 total books that he's written, including The Art of Impossible, The Future is Faster Than You Think, Stealing Fire, The Rise of Superman, Bold and Abundance. His work has been nominated for two Pulitzer Prizes, translated into over 40 languages, and he's appeared in over 100 publications, including The New York Times Magazine, Wired, Atlantic Monthly, Time Mag, and the Harvard Business Review. Stephen is also the co-host of Flow Research Collective Radio, a top 10 iTunes science podcast, and I'm going to give you a heads up now, Stephen really, really knows his stuff on this topic. It is something that will have you feeling like a complete student, but by the end of the 50, 60 minute episode, you are going to be completely blown away and ready to level up your performance. So with that being said, I'm going to urge you to share this episode with the people that are in your circle because the information that is jam-packed and actionable within this episode is absolutely one of a kind. And without further ado, I bring to you our friend, Stephen Kotler. Stephen, first and foremost, welcome to the show. Really excited to have you. 200 plus episodes. You're our first guest of 2022. So welcome. Really excited to have you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be your first guest of 2022. Absolutely. Now, I have done an immense amount of research on your work, specifically around performance. Probably something that we could all use your insights on as with all this turbulence going on in the world. So before diving into the ins and outs of that, I'm curious how performance became a thing in your life. And obviously, I know that you need to perform on a professional level, personal level, so on and so forth. But beyond that, why was it something that you wanted to pursue? That's it. That's a hard question for me because it's always sort of been a thing. And literally, so in my mind, this is the way I, I think about it. When I was a little kid, I didn't really watch television. Television scared me. I thought it was brainwashing, but I was really interested in Hong Kong Fui. And Hong Kong Fui was like a janitor by day. And he got into this secret wardrobe and he'd get in the bottom drawer and come out the top drawers like this Kung Fu uh, funky superhero. And 
I think from, and I saw this when I was four or five, and I think from that point on, I was like, oh, somewhere there's this magic chest of drawers where you get in the bottom drawer, an ordinary person, you come out the top and you're able to kick ass. And I really sort of like, it's a, I'm sort of joking, but I'm sort of not because literally for as long as I could remember, I was interested in questions around process and performance and how do you do this better and more efficiently and why and things along those lines. I was a really difficult kid. Like you couldn't tell me to do something. <laughs> You had to tell me why. And like, is this the best way? Is there a better way? Like from go. So I don't, I don't, I mean, I can tell you where I got interested in, in other topics and performance, but that's sort of like, nobody's actually asked that question before. It really like, I don't know. As long as I can remember, I've been interested in this question of kind of how do you live a more high quality life? Well, that's appreciated. And I'm glad that we asked a question that uh, hasn't been asked before. That's a great compliment to receive. So thank you for that. And thank you for your response as well. So more specifically, I guess what I'm curious to discuss is flow state. So I guess I would react that question more in regards to flow state. Now, I know that you experienced Lyme disease and I heard a honestly, really remarkable story about how surfing kind of like pulled you out of that in a sense. So is there something more to it? So you heard a story that's out of the middle of the story. In the early 1990s, I got out of graduate school. I became a journalist. And journalism was this crazy great career where they essentially like pay you to have adventures and pay you to explore your curiosity. And I was super curious about sort of two things. One, I've always had that, as you now know, this interest in human performance and neuroscience in the 90s, when I was starting to start writing about science and things like that, was really this cool era where behavioral neuroscience, how humans work, was suddenly a thing. And it really wasn't. We really couldn't answer those questions in psychology however useful it can be as a, as, a, as a tool, it's essentially metaphor. And if you really want to make things reliable, repeatable, works for everyone, you want neurobiology, at least in my opinion. And we were starting to get it in the early 1990s. So that was cool. And simultaneously, I was fascinated, obsessed with action sports. And action sports in the early 1990s this is a punk rock deep subculture, right? Like it's the birth of skating and snowboarding and, and free skiing and, and a whole bunch of explosion and rock climbing, mountaineering and all this stuff, but it's still deep punk, mostly punk rock subculture. Climbing is still a little hippie-ish, but most every place else, it's a punk rock subculture and very close to outsiders. And I was living in these communities. I knew these people and I... If you're familiar with the 1990s in rock in action sports, it's often described as this so-called era of impossible, an era where more impossible feats, things that had never been done in history and were never supposed to be done. Got to, they weren't just getting done either. They were being iterated upon. And, you know, the X Games were getting started, the Gravity Games. A lot of people were starting to pay attention. But it's one thing to see something on a television screen. It's quite another to go drinking with your friends on a Friday night in a bar. And you're just dudes hanging out drinking and you wake up Saturday morning and you go into the mountains and one of your friends does something that for all of recorded history has never happened. It's not believed to be possible. And like when that starts happening in, in your life up close, you start wanting an explanation. And because I was studying performance on the other side of my career in the neuroscience and the psychology stuff, I knew a couple of things. Like I do, if you take a community of people and that community doesn't have a lot of education, doesn't have a lot of money, takes huge risks on a regular basis, mostly comes from actually broken homes and really crappy childhoods. And there's a lot of drinking, a lot of drugs. Normally, 
pretty much anywhere in the world, when you put that together in a community, people die young or they go to jail. They don't reinvent what's possible for the species. So long before I got Lyme disease and long before I got sick, I was seeing athletes do astounding things that made no sense. And if you talk to the athletes at the time, they were using language that didn't make any sense. I mean, it was spiritual, it was flimsy, it was, you know, they were in the zone, but it was really, you know, it was a strange language that didn't really have a grounding in science or any kind of shared commonality. It was very often specific to the actual action sport itself. I got Lyme disease. I was sick for three years. I wasn't getting better. There was nothing more doctors could do for me. I was functionless. Like I was in bed for three years. I was functional. I had a brain 10% of the time. I had a body less than that. And a friend of mine, after three years of this, dragged me to the ocean and she demanded that I like go surfing with her basically. And it, 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 I did not get dragged easily. Let's just say like it took some convincing and eventually I got out there. One thing led to another. It was a tiny day. They gave me a giant board. It was warm. I was in the sunshine for the first time in years and a wave came and muscle memory took over. I hadn't surfed in like five or six years. And even back when I surfed, I was never particularly good. And I had like, I, really thought I was going to, I felt like death for about three years straight. And this wave came and pretty much all the energy in my, in the world went into like spinning my board, paddling twice and standing up on what is literally, I think was a foot and a half to two foot sized wave, but it was all the energy I had. And I popped up and I popped up into a dimension I had never experienced before. I had sort of heard about things like this from the action sport athletes, but I like, did, like, Time slowed down completely. I was having an out-of-body experience. I was hovering above myself, watching myself surf. I was surfing incredibly well, which was unusual. I was not in pain. My most exciting was my brain work. Like I literally, like the fog had lifted and I could think. And I was so excited. I caught a bunch more waves that day and had these strange, powerful, altered state experiences. And when I went home, I was disassembled. Like my friends put me back into bed and, and I couldn't move for two weeks. People brought me meals and such. I mean, the 15th day, which is the day I could literally walk again, I caught a ride from a neighbor and went back to the beach and went surfing again. And again, it wiped me out for like, this time like 13 days instead of 14 kind of thing. But on the 13th day, went back to the ocean and did it again. And you got to understand that in between, I'm doing nothing. I am like lying on my couch, sort of moaning. I really like, I can't watch TV because I can't focus long enough to pay attention to anything on television. I can't read because my memory is gone. So by the time I get to the end of the sentence, I can't remember what happened in the beginning, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm literally like just doing nothing in between basically. And over about six to eight months where the only thing I was really doing differently in my life was surfing. I went from functional, clear-headed, able to work, able to talk for about 10% of the time to about 80% of the time. And the only thing that kept happening is I was having these very powerful altered state experiences. And I sort of got to this point where I was like, okay, like one, what the hell is happening to me, right? Like surfing is not a known cure for Lyme disease, chronic autoimmune conditions, right? What the hell's going on there? And two, Lyme is only fatal if it gets into your brain. And I'm a science guy. I'm a rational materialist. I don't have out-of-body experiences. I don't merge with the ocean while surfing. And yet this was all the stuff that was happening to me on a really regular basis. And I was pretty sure it meant that even though I was feeling better, I was losing my mind. And I was like, this was clear indication that I was, you know, the disease had gotten fatal and I was going to die soon. And so I lit out a giant quest to figure out, you know, sort of what the hell was happening to me. And one thing led to another. And I discovered this state has a name. Scientists call it flow, being in the zone, runner's high, being unconscious. The synonyms are endless. 
it's defined technically as an optimal state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. Though more specifically, it just refers to any of those moments uh, like I experienced on the surfboard, but we have them all day long where you get just so sucked into what you're doing, so engrossed, so engaged, so caught up that everything else just starts to disappear. Action and awareness are going to merge. Your sense of self, self-consciousness, the voice in your head, that inner critic is going to get really quiet. So that we, we say self-diminishes in the, in the, in the scientific. Time dilates, which means it passes strangely. Occasionally, you'll get a freeze frame effect. What happened to me while surfing or what happens to a lot of people during car crashes and time slows down. Much more common. You're so sucked into what you're doing and time speeds up, right? Five hours go by in like five seconds. And you're like, what happened in my afternoon? And throughout all aspects of performance, mental and physical go through the roof. And I quickly discovered you know, thanks to uh, the work of a Harvard cardiologist named Herb Benson, why this was impacting my immune system. Benson had right around that time discovered that as we transition into flow, and flow isn't an on or on off, it's not a binary, it's a four-stage cycle. So as you move through the flow cycle and into the state of flow, stress hormones get flushed out of your system almost completely. So the nervous system resets. Big deal with an autoimmune condition, because in an autoimmune condition, it's the nervous system gone haywire. So one of the biggest problems is the body is a homeostatic organism. It wants to like, reset to normal. But if you've been sick for a really long time, especially with an autoimmune condition, you don't know where the hell normal is. So getting back to baseline is like a first toehold towards healing. And then we now understand what causes flow in the brain. And among the various things that are causes, you get five very potent neurochemicals that are pushed into the brain. And all of them have very profound impacts on our immune system. So this was the combination that produced my healing. Her Benson's gone so far. And I think his the breakup principle. He said he thinks that most so-called cases of spontaneous healing probably come down to this mechanism. I think that's probably overstating the case, but it, it certainly um, a lot of research since then, neurophysiology and things like that, um, has borne this idea out. We haven't seen less proof. It hasn't been disproved. We've gotten a lot of it, and there's a whole field that's sort of wrapped around these ideas now 20 years later. And, you know, from that point on, I took this question of sort of what does it have to do the impossible out of action sports, right? And started saying, mostly because I was just too sick still as I was recovering to do much behind my like little surf adventures. I wasn't going to go chase athletes around anything anymore for at least for a while. So I was like, okay, well, what does it take to do the impossible in the arts or in science or in technology? Um, you know, technology is a great example because I spent 25 years covering those moments in time when science fiction became science fact. So the very first time a bionic was switched on and the blind could see I was in the room, the very first time a private spaceship left the planet Earth and, you know, we suddenly individuals could do what NASA and big governments could do before I was at the launch, that sort of thing. And I was always there trying to figure out, well, what the heck, you know, what's going on? How did you do this? Where did this come from? And it turns out it doesn't matter what domain you look at, right? Wherever you see the impossible become possible, whenever you see huge leaps in performance, you see people learning how to harness flow. Interesting. So you piqued my interest on many different areas here. My first thing I actually want to go back to is in the 90s when extreme sports was emerging, you know, X Games was coming up, so on and so forth. And you saw the quote unquote impossible happening. I'm curious to learn from your perspective, was that impossible again, quote unquote, being achieved because individuals were actually trying it? 
So, you know, going from maybe riding a 25 foot wave to a 60 foot wave, was it because they were trying it? Was it because, you know, physically, was it something mentally? I'm curious to learn. Like there's no short answer. The answer is I wrote a book called The Rise of Superman that addresses that very question because there are, I mean, the short answer is flow states have triggers, which are preconditions that lead to more flow. There are 22. We've discovered there's probably way more. But what happened in the 90s is action sport athletes started living in communities of practice, aka action sport time, aka Whistler, British Columbia, what is Squaw Valley, what's now Palisades, Tahoe, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, maybe Chamonix, France, a couple others. There were in North Shore of Oahu, couple other mecca spots. So you started getting these communities coming together and individual flow triggers and group flow triggers are sort of big. It's a complicated story, but they're big. They're not just things that they started availing themselves of more frequently, which happened for a lot of different reasons is a complicated answer. But it was also, so let me give you a simple example. Risk is a flow trigger. We take a risk, you get a little dopamine. Dopamine drives focus into the now that'll drive, that can help drive you into flow. Risk is a flow trigger. For most of recorded history, risk is something we try to make go away, right? Mm -hmm. Unless you're in combat, we're trying to get safer. We're trying to less dead is what we're trying to do across the board. But in action sports, people start seeking out danger. And in when we start coming together as communities, climbers are living in Yosemite, surfers on the North Shore, skiers, and you know, in Tahoe, suddenly this becomes a value. It's a cultural value. It's not just me taking a risk or me and my friends taking a risk. It's a cultural value and it's celebrated in the culture. I'll give you another example. Whenever you see cultures and innovation, you're seeing the same thing. So Silicon Valley, right? Tremendous amount of risk-taking, entrepreneurship, et cetera. Also tremendous amount of value placed on risk-taking and entrepreneurship. So you end up with cultures that are, in a sense, built around flow triggers and not just individuals sort of living in a way to use them more. And those two things together, plus some big technological improvements, are what you know sort of produces that. Right. Now, transitioning more into the story you, out, you, know, you laid out for us, I'm curious, what was it that put you into that altered state when your friend dragged you out into the ocean and threw you on a surfboard. So again, we're going back to flow triggers. We talked about risk as a flow trigger. Couple right. more. So not all flow triggers work by driving dopamine into the system, and they do a lot more than dopamine. But let's just stay with the dopamine for a second. Dopamine, by the way, you know, everybody knows this is that feeling of excitement and joy. Sure. And right, we used to believe dopamine was a quote unquote reward chemical. It's not at all. It's we get dopamine to give us like the courage and the energy, take a risk and get a reward. It shows up whenever we encounter novelty, complexity, unpredictability, risk. All those are dopamine triggers for flow. More importantly, there's something known as the challenge skills balance. This is often called the golden rule of flow, flow's most important trigger. Pretty easy idea. Flow follows focus. It only shows up when all our attention is in the right here, right now. All the triggers do that. Dopamine is one way of doing it. But we pay the most attention to what we're doing, the task at hand, in my case, surfing, right in that story. When the challenge of the task slightly exceeds our skill set. So you want to stretch, but not snap, right? And I hadn't surfed in a really long time. So there's novelty, 
there's complexity, there's unpredictability, there's risk, all that mm. stuff. But the truth of the matter is once I sort of like paddled a couple of times and got to my feet and sort of like the pain load was gone, basically, I'm still a dude surfing a one I, who knew how to surf surfing a one and a half foot wave. The challenge is super low. My perception is really high. Like, oh my God, I could die. I've had Lyme disease forever. I've been bed. But I mean, the truth of the matter is like, once I'm standing up, right, I'm just a guy on a big piece of plastic that's moving at like three miles an hour across a really slow wave, right? There's really, the challenge is actually really slow, uh, really low. The perceived risk is really high, but the actual challenge so slotted me in this really debilitated condition, I think really perfectly into the challenge skills balance. And then I had all these other flow triggers at my disposal and I got them really easily. I mean, like I've been in my bed for three years. So novelty, oh my God, it's a beach, right? Waves, like people in bathing suits. Are you kidding? Like none of this has happened. So in a sense, I got really easy access to a bunch of flow triggers because I had been in bed for a very, very long time. And, you know, the biology works as advertised. The biology, you know, is designed flow. It shows up anywhere, 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 provided certain initial conditions are met because it's how we're all hardwired for peak performance. There are always going to be moments in the evolution of any organism when you've got to perform at your best to stay alive, to survive. Flow is how it, one way we do that. And so it's hardwired into all of us. It shows up in these kinds of situations and it showed up for me. And, you know, and it kept showing because, you know, when you've been sick for that long, you know, and I was only going back to the ocean once every 10 days to, especially in the beginning, it stayed novel and unpredictable. It stayed those things for a while. So I kept getting more flow. There was more going on, but that's sort of the very short sort of digestible version. Yeah, for sure. Now, what are the four stage, I believe you said it's a four stage cycle of flow. And I, I believe you already hit on a few, but just to lay it out for everyone, what are the four stages? The four stages are struggle, and we'll talk about why they're called this in a second, right? Okay. Struggle is stage one, release is stage two, flow is stage three, and then there's a recovery stage on the back end of the flow stage. So let's start with struggle. The term has two meanings. There's long-term struggle and short-term struggle. And they're both applicable here and they're both important here. Long-term struggle, when I use say talk about that, flow is Essentially what happens after we automate a bunch of different skills and the unconscious mind can take over and execute them without conscious interference. That's what happens in flow. You still have to onboard those skills, right? Mm -hmm. So it doesn't, you know, learning how to surf, for example, you're still going to have to learn how to duck dive and paddle a board and stand up on a board and make it. And all those things are individual skills, right? When they come together for the first time, the first time you surf that tends to produce flow because you've got an unconscious pattern being snapped together into a larger whole. One way to think of flow is sort of like proof of learning, proof of mastery, proof of progress, because that's what you're getting. Here's all this stuff that got learned. So what's interesting about struggle is it's frustrating by design. So the when we learn, we have to learn consciously and the working memory, all the stuff, the contents of consciousness, what you can think about at any one time, most of us can really only hold about four items, right? You can go up to nine if they're single digits, but most of us, when you're dealing with concepts, ideas, or, you know, something like you're trying to learn how to swing up a baseball bat, right? Keep your eye on the ball, step into the pitch. And one other thing, and the brain's freaking overloaded. You know what I mean? Like it's too much. <laughs> 
And that's by design. And what happens is we, in struggle, you want to load and overload the brain with information. It actually like the crazier, more frustrated and more packed in use until like you're about to explode. There's actually a lot of research that says the better. So this is really important for people who want more flow in their lives because all of us, we're all, we're human. And most of us when we encounter frustration, anger, this shit ain't working. Oh my God, I can't learn. Like we get mad. We, we want to stop. We want to walk away. We want to go get drunk or stoned or like at least watch television or take a ball game, right? Like this ain't working. And the truth of the matter is you have the frustration is actually a sign you're going in exactly the right direction, which is really interesting. And so short-term flow is sort of the same thing. But you, one of the things you have to know about flow is it's sort of an adaptive stress response. So it, show, it tends to show up when there's a little bit of frust- frustration, you can't you can't try to be flowy. You have to get aggressive. You have to attack the. You have to lean in or attack the problem. So different action sports example filled with them today apparently because you started me on this road. One of the most common injuries in action sports is a broken collarbone via mountain biking. And what happens? Almost 50% of the time, not 100%, 50% of the time, somebody goes out and in their mind, the back of their mind, the last time they went mountain bike riding, they had a flow experience and they think flowy mountain bike riding, it's a flowy sport. If you've ever ridden a mountain bike, you know, there's nothing flow. It's an aggressive sport that you have to attack the trail at all times, or you will get absolutely bucked off the bike. It's a violent sport. And if you lean in and attack the trail, it becomes flowy. But if you try to just, oh, it'll just be flowy. What happens is the violence of the trail will bounce you around. You will be trying to do a flowy ride and you're going to get bounced right over your handlebars. Happens all the time. Right. Agreed. So even in the short term, we see flow requires it's like microburst of testosterone and norepinephrine, which is the brain's version of adrenaline, just to focus attention totally in attack mode. So that's stage one, that's struggle. Stage two is release. So Releases literally take your mind off the problem. So you've been trying to learn something, trying to learn something, trying to learn something. The way we learn something is we stop thinking about it. We take our and the conscious mind passes it over to the subconscious. Subconscious is super fast, has much wider pattern recognition capabilities. It learns on its own, right? All we really have to do is take the break and usually. For actual learning, you need some sleep. But for flow, all you got to do is take your mind off the problem. Now, what works best here, the research has shown, is low-grade physical activity. Long walks are great. I love them. So I do my morning writing session where I'm working on my on my book or whatever, my, like really the hardest task of my day. It's usually my books, but sometimes it's something for my companies or, or whatever. And when it's done, I always go hike my dog through the mountain. It's a release activity. Other things Albert Einstein famously used to sail about in the middle of Lake Geneva. Funny story. Einstein was really addicted to this for the release activity and for the flow it produced. The dude couldn't sail and he couldn't swim. So he would like fumble out to the middle of Lake Geneva, which is super prone to storms. And he was getting, he would get rescued like once or twice a month and he wouldn't stop because it was his, (laughs) this is my process, man. Leave me alone. Um, so my buddy Lee Slodoff, who studied this in writing very extensively, has found that building model airplanes actually are models because it's sort of tactile involvement, but it's not too much brain works good here, works well here. Gardening is great for some people. Sometimes you can read, but it's a little, there's rules around reading. And I think they vary individually. So I can't speak hard and fast. It's a little tricky to talk about reading. Television does not work for this. Interesting. Um, it will actually screw this up. 
for a variety of neurobiological reasons that we're not going to go into here. But anyways, release, and you can work out, but you can't exhaust yourself. That's the problem. So that's why I say low-grade physical activity. Like for me, when I go to the gym, I like to go hard. You know what I mean? I can't go to the gym and sort of be like, okay, I'm just going to stay mellow and, you know, whatever, work to have a, have a light sweat. That's not how I'm wired. So like going to the gym is a bad idea if I need a release activity. Third state is flow state itself. And there's usually it's a bunch of flow triggers you can start to apply during struggle and more during release help produce this. So the third state is the flow state itself, big state, big high, big optimal performance state. And not surprisingly, on the back end of a flow state, there's a recovery period. What goes up must come down. There's a lot of energy that goes into flow. So the neurochemicals that underpin the state are in their limited supplies. And when they burn out, we need certain nutrition and sunlight and a couple of things to make them again. So there's a, there can be a time block. And this is also where you learned a bunch of stuff in flow. Performance went up struggled to get there, got there in flow and you got a demonstration of it, but it's not coded in. You have to sleep in recovery. Sleep is really, really, really critical in recovery because otherwise there's no learning. And if there's no learning, you can't follow that challenge skills balance up, right? It like right. the skills keep getting harder and harder and harder, which is what you're supposed to do to sort of, that's the path to mastery. That's the path to more flow. And if you're not recovering, your body can't get ready for the next round. And more importantly, and this is, you see this, you see this with a lot of what? So uh, I was talking to a bunch of salesmen and women yesterday, and you see this a lot in sales. So everybody goes out and has a killer quarter, right? Like they destroy their quotas, like massive amounts. Could be a team, could be an individual, could be whatever. And you come back to work, and the boss is like, "Oh, that was fantastic! You guys kicked ass. So check the check it out. I want you to do it again. This time, I'm going to double your territory, and instead of giving you eight weeks, let's try it in six. And suddenly, like, you're wildly out of the challenge skills sweet spot, and you haven't been given any recovery time, right? You just went through this high flow period of, I'm selling, I'm selling, I'm selling, I'm selling, and you, you kicked ass. The, you got into flow, it delivered, you got the results you wanted, but there's no, there's no break on the back end. And so there's no, if you can't take that break, if you can't recover, how do you get up for this serious, serious, like, fight of struggle on the back end? if you can't recover. So that's, by the way, one of the one of the recipes for burnout. Right. I was just going to ask you in the, I mean, what you said was great. What goes up must come down. I'm curious, is that down period, is it depressive or? It's an interesting question. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. You definitely don't have any more feel good fun juice, right? Because if you've been in a deep flow state, you burn out a lot of your, I mean, dopamine is used every second in the body, but like big stores of dopamine that you can, for fireworks, yeah, you've sort of tapped those out. Serotonin does the same thing. Anybody who's ever done ecstasy knows that if you cook through all the serotonin dancing on a Saturday night, you're going to feel very depressed on Tuesday and Wednesday, right? Same thing. Uh, here, there's a little serotonin. Some of that is true. Let me reframe that though, because I think there's an evolutionary reason for that. And it's to our advantage if we understand it. The reason is this inflow outside of athletic performance. Let's go into a much more common experience, which is like a creative problem solving flow state that happens to all of us all the time at work, writing, whatever, that sort of thing. Flow is a big high. Dopamine and norepinephrine, which underpin flow, one of the reasons creativity is amplified so much in flow is those two neurochemicals, they do a lot of different things. The brain neurochemicals are essentially multi-tools. So you can never say, oh, they just do this one thing. No, they do a ton of, ton of stuff. 
And not all of it, you know what I mean? Like serotonin is like a calming chemical in the brain and a digestion chemical in your stomach. So they're not, it doesn't always make sense the way we want it to do, but uh, dopamine, norepinephrine, amplify pattern recognition. So if you're a coder, speak geek, they tune signal the noise ratios. You see more signal in the noise when we have dopamine in our system. And this, this is everything. Like people with more dopamine in their system will believe in more conspiracy theories. They're more likely to be deeply religious. They're more likely to see if I show you scrambled faces. Some of them are real pictures and some of them are like, you know, John's nose, Sarah's forehead, Kevin, right? People with more dopamine in our system are going to claim the fake faces. They're going to see real faces even when they're not. You see more pattern. This is great for creativity. It's fantastic. So creativity is boundless and flow, but not every great creative idea you have, even not every creative idea you have in flow is a good one. We all know this, right? If you're if you're any kind of just doing any kind of creative problem solving for a living, you hit it out of the park sometimes, but not all the time. And in flow, when every pat, everything connects to everything, everything looks good, not the best time to evaluate your idea. But out of flow, that's a phenomenal time to evaluate your ideas. Key differentiator. So, and I'll, and I'll give you great time to evaluate ideas, terrible time to try to fix them if they're wrong. So, how does that work in real life for me? I'll get in a big writing flow state, for example, the next day. I always start my writing session by editing what I wrote the day before, but if I had a huge, exhausting flow state, instead of trying to edit what I wrote the day before, I'm just going to read it. Did I like it? If I don't like it, I just circle what I don't like and I come back to it. Don't try, because I don't have the brain power at this particular, on the back end of flow to fix it. All I'm going to do is now I'm going to make myself miserable, right? Now I'm, because you don't actually have the brain power and the happy juice and a bunch of stuff. So you asked, is it happy? Is it sad? It can be miserable if you're trying to do wrong things in the experience. If you're just trying to recover and you're not really trying to use your brain, your body too much, it's great. But And it can, it's very useful, I find, for sort of just high level. Let me review, you know, oh, we had a really great brainstorming session at work yesterday, amazing high flow meeting. Cool. Today, when I'm not in flow, let's review those ideas and see which ones are really sticky and that we like. Does that make sense? It does. It does. I'm curious to learn how long this four stage cycle can last and maybe not even just the four stages, but how long can flow last? Can you, can you extend that so safely? We don't really know the answer. We know that the average flow state, and this is just sort of going off of how long some of the neurochemicals that are in the state are supposed to last in your brain and, and do seem to last in your brain. Usually about 90 minutes tip to tail. That's a general average, but there are huge examples of outliers. So there's an altruism-based flow state triggered by helping people called helper's high. That can last a couple of days. We Maybe it's because there's more oxytocin and or a, a couple other neurochemicals in there, but nobody knows. We can't figure it out, but we just know that that'll last for days. Or if you've ever, if you've taken part in a startup that launched a product, you know that like st- either launching the company or launch a big product launch, everybody's in flow like leading up to the launch. Right. You like usually for like a couple of weeks, you drop, you come to work and you drop into like a group flow state, you go home and you drop out of it and then you come back to work and it happens. That's really common for writers at the tail end of a book, right? Mm -hmm. The last sort of quarter of a book usually takes a tenth of the time all the other stuff takes. Um, And you'll go, you'll sit down at your desk, you'll be back into flow and you'll go away and it'll drop out. So that stuff happens as well. 
Uh, though you usually pay, you have a longer recovery period. Like when you keep falling into flow and coming back, you, it does seem like sooner or later, you know what I mean? You pay for it and you really need to reboot on the other end of it. So 90 minutes is sort of the average, but there's really crazy outliers. And as far as the flow cycle, it's an interesting question. And before I can answer that, I have to tell you one other thing that we didn't talk about, which is flow isn't a singular experience. It's like any emotion, right? Anger. You're a little irked. You're mm-hmm. homicide of the murderous. It's the same emotion. So you can have micro flow. When psychologists define flow, they say the state has six core characteristics, psychological, phenomenological characteristics, how the experience makes you feel. I mentioned a bunch of these complete concentration on the task at hand, the merger of action awareness, self diminishment, time dilation. We don't experience peak performance. We experience a sense of control. Oh my God, I can control shit I can't normally control, right? That's peak <laughs> performance on the inside. And the other half of that sort of is uh, psychologists will use the term autotelic. It's a fancy way of saying something is an end in itself, which is another fancy way of saying. If an experience produces flow, it is so damn fun, so joyous, so ecstatic. It's so addictive. I can't wait to do it again, right? Surfing. I'm freaking sick with Lyme disease. I can't get out of bed. I go surfing once, get five waves. And like two weeks later, when I can walk again, I go back to the ocean and do it again. That's autotelic, right? When I just like, it drives itself. So those are the six conditions that measure flow. Microflow. That's when all six show up, but they're like dialed at one or two. This is you go to work, sit down to write an essay or an email, and you look up an hour later and you didn't notice time passing and you've written a freaking essay, right? That's micro flow. Macro flow is what happened to me while surfing. Time slows down and you're one with the waves or one with whatever you're focusing on, actually, and things like that start to happen. Um, it's a spectrum of experiences. We can have micro flow experiences, and our experience at the Flurry Research Collective on the back end of being sort of trained in how to do this stuff, which isn't all that hard, actually. Though there's a lot to do. It's not actually hard to do. We see like a 70 to 80% boost in flow. And what that usually manifests as is people find their way into like one to two to three micro flow states a day. And then over the course of a week, they can get one to two to three macro flow states as well. That's usually what we've seen. But when you get a big ass macro flow, I go skiing, right? Which is for me, almost instant macro flow. I have a big ski day. And the next day, not only am I exhausted from the ski day, so I've really worn my body down. I've also burned out my mind, you know, and I'm not like, I'm probably not going to get into macro flow that next day at all. And micro flow, maybe I'll get into like, a micro flow state while writing, but it's not going to last super long. It's going to be shorter. You won't, I won't make it the full 90 minutes because I probably don't have enough energy and enough neurochemistry in my system at that point. Now you said something interesting, Stephen, and I, I just want to get clear on this because I, I really find it to be interesting. You referenced, you know, working on a startup, uh, you have a launch coming up and, you know, you get out of flow when you go home, you get inflow when you're in the office. Can your, for instance, if you and I are working on something and you're in a state of flow and I show up to the office, can I be influenced by your state of flow? That's a great question. Uh, and welcome to the cutting edge of flow research. So one, there's two versions of flow. There's individual flow and then there's group flow, shared collective virtual flow state. So group okay. flow has lots of different variations. Interpersonal flow, me and you talking, right? This is me and you getting a great conversation. An hour goes by, we don't even notice. That's group micro flow, right? Or interpersonal flow. You could have what you have at a startup, that's group flow. It's a whole team working together, brainstorming, blah, blah, blah. 
Or you can have group flow at scale. It's known as communitas. So you go to a rock concert and like everybody sort of becomes one with the band. You're all clapping along in rhythm and right like that. It's communitas. It's group flow at scale. So what do we know in office environments and organizational environments? This is sort of the cutting edge of flow research because it's really hard to measure collective behavior in the brain. We can now start putting people into flow and putting them into scanners and figuring out what's going on. But can I put an entire football team <laughs> into flow in a brain, in an fMRI? You know, it, there are limitations, but we're starting to get technologies that are allowing us to get around that a little bit. We're starting to have better ideas. And by we, I don't mean me or even the flow research collective. I mean, we, everybody in the world doing flow research right now, which is a lot of people. So it's a big week. I'm using. You asked me, oh, group flow, is it contagious? What the research shows is one, it is a little contagious because there is a facial, there's a facial signature for flow where our frown muscles are sort of paralyzed and our smile muscles are hyperactive in flow. That's a facial signature for flow. And like any facial expression, it, those are contagious, right? Because we have mirror neurons and we, and we automatically will mimic that. So that's a little bit. There's also brain entrainment. Our brain waves will start kind of syncopating and, and working together. And that has an impact on flow. And we also know in most situations, school's a little different. I can come back to it if you want. Uh, but in most situations, a leader in flow will put his team into flow or has a better chance mm-hmm putting this team into flow. Now there are group flow triggers, right? There are 12 individual triggers, 10 group flow triggers. You can map, there's ways to work with this and amplify this and whatever. But usually, for example, we, we work with tons of organizations, you know, all for everybody from kind of the U.S. Navy SEALs through Fortune, C-suite executives at Fortune 500 companies through whole companies. Not that this is the only way to do it, but one of the most more effective ways we have found to train organizations in flow is to start you know, with the executive team and train them up. First one, you know, you get to see them lead by example because suddenly everybody is a lot happier and a lot more productive and everybody working around that is like, well, how do you do that? Like, what just happened? <laughs> right? You got pleasant and calm and productive. Like, what the hell? So it tends to be, you know, sort of infectious that way because, you know, it changes things as well. And then we also... You start to, the, t- the teams start to get into flow a little bit more when that happens. You being a, start being able to steer towards flow. So it's often sort of an easier way to introduce these ideas into a corporate culture. I love that. This whole topic has been insanely interesting, but I have to ask you, what's a question you wish more people would ask you? That's interesting. So I asked that I because... I, but let me, so I don't, let me... I, fumble at this. Sometimes I just could ask, but it's just, I think it's really important to say right now, because like everybody's got a thing, right? There's this thing that everybody, all of us, we all have our magic, like flows mine for somebody else's meditation, for somebody else's. And the thing I just really have to point out at this point in the discussion is flows optimal performance, it's peak performance, but it's not the whole of the puzzle. When we, t- like I, most of my work is on cognitive peak performance more than physical performance. In cognitive peak performance, there are four skill sets that matter. There's a set of skills under the heading of motivation. There's another set of skills under the heading of learning. There's a third set of skills under the heading of creativity. And there's a fourth set of skills under the heading of flow. And the way I always sort of explain, if you want to understand it together, is I always say, look, motivation gets you into the game. Learning is what allows you to continue to play creativity, especially when you're going after like high, hard goals where you're not quite sure how to get there. Creativity is how you steer and flows, how you amplify the results. So what I always, you know, the 
thing I caution people about is like the single tool. I also see it a lot in the tech world where like, so flow, if you look at the neurobiology of flow, there's like 17 different things going on in the brain and the body that we can measure now. There's probably more, but like that's the count right now. And you'll see a lot of like apps online or brainwave technologies that, that are measuring one single thing, brainwaves or heart rate or heart rate, and they're calling it flow. No, that's not flow. Those are a whole bunch of things. You've got like one seventeenth of the big picture and you've got a useful, like it's useful, right? Brainwaves have to be doing a certain thing, but like small part of the big picture. And I also want to remind people that like, same thing with flow. Like I can tell you all about flow and how to get into it and everything else, but like there's more to this story from a peak performance perspective. I'm suspicious of anybody who wants to sell me like, like one of these, you know, my tool measures one thing and thus it must be flow and salvation. You know what I mean? And thus I'd be suspicious of somebody who's got a thing like flow when they're trying to say, okay, this is the one thing. It's the cure all because it's not, it doesn't actually work that way. And you, you know, the good news is peak performance is nothing more or less than getting our biology to work for us rather than against us. But if you look at it from a cognitive level, that biology is a bunch of motivation skills, a bunch of learning skills, a bunch of creativity skills, and a bunch of flow skills. So there's a little bit more to this story. And we have this natural human tendency to want to simplify. And it, especially with flow, it gets dangerous. And the reason is this, flow is this enormous turbo boost. If you go through the literature, 500% boost in creativity, it's a 700% boost in creativity. It, you know, risk, take, all this stuff goes through the roof, but it's not stable over time. It's if you, you need motivation, you need that like the three legs of the stool to support that high flow existence. And if you're not simultaneously training up motivational skills and learning skills and creativity skills, you can't support. It's like a, it was the example I always give is you have a Model T in the soup of the engine, and now the engine goes 150 miles an hour, and you still get those skinny ass tires. <laughs> How long can the car down drive down the road at 150 miles an hour before it shakes apart? That's sort of what happens with flow. If you amplify flow, train up flow, but you're not working on motivation, learning, and creativity, sooner or later the whole thing explodes. Interesting. So that's the thing that people, I don't know what the question is, but that's the thing that like not enough people ask me enough because we like, oh, this flow is going to sell, meditation is going to sit. No, none of these things by themselves are going to save you. Like it, do, it just does, biology doesn't work that way. I wish it did. <laughs> I love that. Now, Stephen, I, I know I need to let you go. I have one last question for you. If you live to whatever year you want to live, you write as many books, you speak on as many stages, you hop on as many podcasts, so on and so forth, but you could only be remembered for one piece of advice. What would that be? I have no idea. I mean, I really like, it's funny. People ask these kinds of legacy questions and like you have, this is, this is where I'm going to say this. Maybe this is the advice I'm remembered for. I write the books to save my life. That's mm -hmm. what I do. Right. And when my editors are happy, I'm done. That's like, I have some marketing. It's like the podcast, the talking, the speaking. Like, I've got a job to do to tell, help tell the world about it. But everything else that happens, very little to do with me and everything to do with you. I have people come up to me and they're like, oh my God, you changed my life, you whatever. And I'm like, no, I did not. I did not. You changed your life. And my maybe it was my book. And maybe it was my book. But as a general rule, it was. Like it would have been any one of like a thousand different things that would have showed up at this particular moment and done this. You changed your life. You don't have to give away that power. My job was done. My editor was like, Stephen, this is great. You cracked me up. I learned a bunch. I loved reading this. Thank you.
I'm done. On to the next. I'm a creative. I'm on to the next project. I'm interested in the creative act. The legacy questions, I'm not. It's somebody else's question. It's not for me. Respectable. I love it. Now, you have anything on the horizon we should let people know about? Yeah, I've got a, I've got a bunch of stuff on the horizon. April 20th, I publish a new novel, cyberpunk thriller, sci-fi thriller uh, called The Devil's Dictionary. It's my third novel. And uh, I think I finally got it right this time. <laughs> um, so that, yeah, that's coming out. Yeah, that's the next, that's the next big thing. I'll stop there. I love that. Now, where, where are you on social? I don't see you on Instagram anymore. I see your, your page is still there. So I've never really been on Instagram. Sure. Okay. My team's on Instagram. I try to very much limit my social media exposure, but Instagram totally, I like I built up something like 30,000 followers and they told me I wasn't me and shut that page down. And there's uh. no, then, then my people working with me got bummed and they go, well, this is not possible. We have to relaunch an Instagram page for you. And they built it back up to what it was, but it's hard to feel like, I mean, you know what I mean? I'm sort of on Twitter. You can find me on Twitter and you occasionally find me on Facebook. I, unless I've got a lot sort of going on that's public facing that I want to, you know, tell people about, I try to limit my social media stuff. That That's respectable. <laughs> I just wanted to make sure that I was pointing people in the right direction, but I'm going to make sure that all yeah, websites. Yeah, point him, point him to, you can point them to Instagram, but that's, that's what happened. And the truth of the matter is with FRC, with all of it, I just, I, it's not right yet. Meaning like it's, okay. I haven't. And so I like to make great art. And if it's not great art, I don't like to make it. And I feel that's the problem with social media is like somebody else can just like put out like three words. I just, if it's language, I got to make great art or why am I doing it? Mm. Um, it's a psychosis, I know. So, but I'm trying to get my shit together with Fit the Flurry Research Collective to sort of relaunch Instagram in a way that I think is like, first of all, cool, artistic and creative, but also is useful to people. Yeah. Because I don't think it's I don't I don't think what's going on now is as useful as it could be. So look for a reinvention of Instagram soon. <laughs> I'll definitely make sure that socials, websites, where books are released, so on and so forth is in the show notes. But Stephen, expressing our gratitude again, maybe around two, because I have a lot more questions. So definitely appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for your interest in my work. Have a great day. You as well. And there you have it, everyone. Episode number 222 with one of the world's leading experts in human performance, our friend Stephen Kotler. As always, you could check out Stephen's information, which can be found in the show notes of this episode, everything from socials and websites and where to get the books, all of that good stuff. I'm going to urge you again to make sure that you're sharing this episode for anyone that is interested in leveling up their performance, someone that may be interested in your life, in learning how to tap into flow state because it's a lot more than what we may seem. And again, it's not to make it more complex. It's to understand it from a grassroots perspective, you know, all the way from the base, the foundation of what flow state is to be able to tap in, to be able to utilize it, to be able to not have such a hard come down. The list goes on. Listen, make sure that you're sharing it with the people in your circle who could benefit from this. If you're still tuned into this, you're still rocking with us right here, right now. You clearly did. So the like-minded people you're surrounding yourself with most likely will as well. Until next time, everyone be blessed. Peace.